Hi, I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for listening to this podcast. There are many more podcasts available at MyFaithRadio.com. Your support makes this possible. Thank you. And a warm welcome to the afternoon show. I'm Bill Arnold, and it is going to be a full two hours of guy talk or guys who talk. One of my favorite days of the week, which means you ask the questions and my power panel does their very best to answer whatever questions you have. And I know you have questions because we all do, and we need to ask our questions. So get them on uh, over to me at 877-933-248. Eight four. My power panel in perfect order is Dr. B, Tom P, and Jeff V. Gentlemen, welcome. <laughs> yes, good good afternoon, Bill. Yeah, they're exactly in the chairs I need them to be in, <laughs> so I can go Dr. B, Tom P, Jeff V. You have to switch. One. Don't you dare. <laughs> Bill, Don't Bill you dare. A. I like it. Bill A. Yeah, I haven't heard that yet. Yeah, I, I have, did not create a disclaimer for today. Oh, no. I liked it. You know, it went so fast last time, I couldn't understand all that it disclaimed. So we're going to have to hear it again at some point. We have it handy. We could probably play last week. It's handy. You want me to play? Oh, we definitely need to play last week's. All questions today will be answered in the best way possible based solely on the Word of God. There are roughly 8,000 people in this world. You clearly don't need another opinion. The panel today were blessed by a listener with pizza a few months ago, but if they think they're getting any kind of Christmas present from me, they are magnificently wrong. That's great. Yeah, tell me it. something I don't know already. <laughs> I'm a master of the obvious, aren't I, Greg? <laughs> All right. My first question today comes from Jane. She wants to know, did people in Bible times, the chosen Israelites, or anyone else, question the creation story and God as creator? I'm not aware of a passage in the Bible that says people were questioning whether God did, in fact, create the world and everything in it. Nor do I read that they were looking for an alternative explanation to creation like the Big Bang Theory. Great question, Jane. Gentlemen. Well, I'm sure that Paul ran into it when he addressed people that were worshiping various idols, so they had to have a different worldview. They might have had a you know, a, um, creation story, which were we, after the fact, we know now I mean, historically that the Babylonians and others had creation stories that are similar but not the same. So and you can only speculate, I guess, Bill, that, that, yeah, they had them. Sure. I know of no historical evidence for what I would call the Renaissance period or when our, our whole scientific approach began to, to steam up that any culture uh, questioned about the existence of God or the existence of his creation. They just had, as, as Greg mentioned, different stories, mm-hmm. and there are tons of stories out there. Yeah, excuse me, I've been in uh, Athens, and in the center of Athens, there is a a great big temple on the top of a big hill, and it's the Temple to Artemis, and next to that temple is supposedly the first olive tree ever planted. I think they claim it was planted by Zeus himself, so I think there's a lot of cultures that have a lot of different, you know, uh, traditions or stories about creation, many of which has to do with some kind of deity of some sort. Um, So I I, I think to answer, directly answer the question, I think there's a lot of people who did not believe the biblical account yeah. of creation as described in Genesis, uh, because all of the world, there's a lot of people who followed after false gods and had false creative 
uh, creation stories. But like you uh, mentioned, Tom, I think most of them uh, viewed it as the work of some kind of deity or another. As I mentioned before, my great-grandmother was full-blooded Cherokee. Interesting, when I go back in that history of the family, when I go back to what the Cherokees believed, they had creation stories. Mm -hmm. It goes clear back for as long as they remember. And every tribe literally has its own story. So it's very prominent. The truth is out there. And that's where it goes back to Solomon again. You know, eternity has been planted in our hearts. So we know there's a creator. We know there's an eternity. Just people have different ways of looking at it until they hear the truth that comes through Jesus. So much strife and sin. Hmm. I don't know what's going on there. We will keep talking, though. Somebody might have. So we're on that side. It's not here. I think it's Greg. Is that yours? Yeah, unfortunately, I That's apologize. Okay. That's okay. Just that came happens. on. No, that happens. Um, continue, <clears throat> Tom, if you still have your train of thought. And so if you look at every culture, and I love to read about South America, you go to the Aztecs, you go back to that whole period, it's there. The problem is most people today, we have lost our understanding of history. We don't look beyond our own time, and we don't see that historically we are asking the same questions that were asked 2,000 years ago or 3,000 years ago, and the stories are out there. But it was only when the Lord set apart the Jews, the chosen people, and worked through them and told the story from his perspective. Everybody else has got their own perspective but then we get the true story culminating in the Lord Jesus. Mm -hmm. So do we want to open up this can of worms? One of the things that was in that question was contrasting the biblical uh, account of creation to, uh, I can only assume by the question, the unbiblical account of the Big Bang. The alternative explanation to creation. Correct. That was part, well, I mean, that's part of the question. It, it, it is. So I don't think the Big Bang is contradictory to the biblical creation account. Okay, what I mean by that is that, a little background, prior to Hubble, Edwin Hubble, you know, the, the, the telescope was named after him. He's the one who discovered that the universe is expanding, expanding outward, and concluded that if it's expanding outward, it must have come from a single point. And that is where we got the idea originally that the universe had a beginning, the, the idea of a Big Bang at a singular point in space and time, creation started, and before that... Scientists had a, a, a view that was called the steady state. They believed the universe was eternal. And if, you, if the universe is eternal, you don't need an eternal creator to create it. Mm -hmm. Hubble came along and said, no, the universe had a beginning. Albert Einstein confirmed his findings. Stephen Hawking confirmed it. Many, virtually every aspect of science has confirmed that the universe has a, had a beginning. Now, scientists had a problem. Because even though they had discovered that the universe had a beginning, what was before the beginning? Right. What, what was around one millisecond before creation? And they've never been able to answer that question because we know the answer. When Hubble said that there was a beginning and it was a Big Bang, it actually proved the Bible true from the very first verse. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the scientific community— that created a revolution that most of us never heard about. It so shook up the scientific world that there has to be something that created this or someone, and it didn't just happen. And it really shook them to the point where it began to change a lot of people's thinking. And that's where today we are around the Big Bang theory, but the Big Bang understanding that there was something before the Big Bang right. that caused the Big Bang. And we know that from Genesis, it was the Lord. 
And and now decades later, really quick, decades later, what science is now trying to do is eliminate the need for a beginning. And so now you have all of this multiverse stuff. It's not only in science and pop culture. It's in the movies and all over the place. What science is trying to do is make creation eternal again. And if they do that, there is no need for an eternal creator to create the universe. But even somebody that holds to a position of a, the Big Bang aren't necessarily attributing that to the creation Correct. of God. They're just saying that, well, something happened way back when, and it began. Mm-hmm. And so they'll deny even deity being having anything to do with the so-called Big Bang. Exactly. So now science is desperately trying to create a narrative where they don't need the beginning again, but we have all these multiverses floating around somehow, and, and their interaction is what cr- ended up creating our universe, and all they've done is tried to make creation eternal again, like they believed before the discovery of a, of a beginning, of a Big Bang. One of the influences that is permeating our society is called a negation of reality. In order to replace the truth with something else, you have to, first of all, destroy the truth. Hmm. That's just exactly what you're talking right. about, Jeff, to get rid of the whole idea of anything starting and saying it was eternal and denigrate anybody who holds to that position because negating reality means you denigrate or you criticize or you get rid of or you vilify whatever was there so you can replace it with something else. Mm, interesting point. All right, gentlemen, nice job uh, on the opening question. I like the way this is going. Uh, 877-933-2484 to send your question over. And the next question comes to us from um, Elaine, and she wants to know, um, let's see here. I just got so many questions that came in. Here we go. Uh, do we choose faith or does God give it to us? Well, Ephesians really gives the implication that both grace and faith are gifts. Now, how that works out in the individual person, I don't think any of us fully knows. I know this in my own spiritual walk. I was 22 years old uh, when I finally made a personal commitment to the Lord Jesus. And I'd grown up in the church and I believed, but it was more like a historical belief rather than a personal belief. If you take me back to that day and you say, well, Tom, what led up to that moment of you believing? There was nothing I did that made any sense. I had people talking to me about Jesus personally. I had people witnessing to me. I had people telling me I should do this or that. But it literally, it was like one morning I woke up, Bill, and suddenly I realized this Jesus is the real thing. And I submitted my life. I don't take it personally. I don't take any credit even for my faith. I look at my faith as a gift. And I hang on and cling to the blood of Jesus for what he's done. And for me, that has set me free, and I don't live with fear or terror anymore about, do I have enough faith? Because my faith isn't how much faith I got. My faith is in the person of Jesus Christ. You know, the fact is, is that everybody has faith. Faith in something. They're born with the idea of having faith in something. And your faith is only as valid as the object you place it in. And so when we talk about our Lord, we're talking about the fact that Every human being on the face of the earth that has ever lived, every country, every era, is is born with the idea of eternal. We talked about Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11, that God's placed eternity into each person's soul, yet not so they know what God has done from the beginning to the end. It compels us to ask questions about 
you know, why am I here? Am I making any progress? Would I do have any lasting impact? And it, it puts us on this forever search for uh, the reality of something beyond ourselves, even though we might deny that it be God or the work of, finished work of Jesus Christ. We still have faith. Faith is, again, only good as the object it's placed in. Yeah, so this underlying this question is kind of this debate. Uh, are people saved by divine election or by free will choice in believing uh, in the message and believing in the gospel? Um, that's that's kind of underlying in this question. It really comes from Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, uh, which says this, For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourself. It is the gift of God, not by work so that no one can boast. So the, the this debate really centers on what is the it? Mm-hmm. What is the it in it is uh, the gift of God? Is the gift of God, is the it faith? Or is it the salvation that Paul is talking about? Um, I have concluded that it's the salvation yeah. that Paul is talking about. He's saying, for it is grace, by grace that you have been saved through faith, it is a gift from God, meaning salvation is a gift of God. Salvation is a free gift from God by his grace given to those who what? Who believe, who have faith. Now, Tom, like you were saying, without God, there is no salvation. There's no plan of salvation. There's no ability to believe faith or anything. So it all is from God, but specifically, technically, it's this question really goes to what is the it of Ephesians 2, 8? And I think the it is salvation rather than the faith. Some argue that the it is the faith itself in Ephesians 2, 8. Mm. All right. Keep the questions coming. They're wonderful questions. We've got lots coming in, 877-933-2484. Gentlemen, will some Christians go through the tribulation? Let me just read that again. Will some Christians go through the tribulation? For example, a Christian who is saved but has fallen away from faith. Um, No and yes. No, in the sense that this, I think every single person who is born again is going to be caught up together with the Lord in the the air prior to the tribulation that is to come upon the whole world. Uh, There are many passages that I think paint a picture of a rapture that happens before the tribulation. And we are ready by faith in Christ. If you are saved, you're going to be raptured. So the answer is no. I don't believe anybody who's truly born again will enter into the at tribulation the time of rapture. at the time of the rapture. But yes, Christians will go through the tribulation in this sense. Many, many, many people will believe after the rapture of the church, yep. during the tribulation. In fact, in Revelation chapter 7, we see a great multitude in heaven uh, that have come from every tribe, tongue, people, nation. And, and John says, where did they come from? And the angel says, they came out of the great tribulation. So we know that many people believe during the and tribulation. And there will be many period. who are martyred during Correct. the tribulation. Absolutely. That's why they're faith. seen up in heaven, right? Yep. Wow. All right. Send your questions over. We're going to take a little break, and we'll be back with lots of guy talk, 877-933-2484. From left to right is Dr. B, Tom P, Jeff V. That's the team. We'll be right back. You've probably heard me talk about hope quite a bit this season, and I think it's because we need to hear more about it. We need to encourage one another with hope. We need to 
build one another up with the hope that we have in Christ. And if you are feeling lonely or maybe you are having periods of disappointment or despair and you need hope, we want you to know that you can always come to God's word for hope. Hope will always be there for you waiting. And if you are struggling to make it to the next moment, I want you to be able to text the word HOPE to 877-933-2484. All right, we are back with Guy Talk, or guys who talk, and they also look at me kind of funny, so, but that's my problem, right? (laughs) (laughs) All right. In Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. About that time, some wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem asking, Where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose, and we have come to worship him. couple of questions. How did these wise men from the east, being pagans, know the newborn baby was the king of the Jews? You know, that's very interesting. What is the star in the sky that they were following? Where did mm-hmm. they find out about it? Well, you that, know, where did they get that information? That's, part, that's question part two. Oh. The question two is, how did they know to follow a star to this newborn? Yeah. The, the only explanation that I've ever heard that makes any sense is, remember, there was a whole bunch of wise men from Israel who were taken captive to the east, to Babylon, mm-hmm. including Daniel and Radshak, Meshach, and Abednego, and a bunch of other wise men. And I'm assuming they learned about this future Messiah and about a star and this king to be born and so on from them. When they then came to Israel because they saw his star rise in the in the sky, they came to Bethlehem and the wise men said that he would be born in Bethlehem. And they actually get that from Malachi, the last book of the Bible, where it says that your king will be born in Bethlehem. And the wise men understood that and pointed the kings from the east to Bethlehem. I I have to, to believe that there was something unique and distinct about that star that wasn't seen in the heavens before. That would make it stand out like that to, you know, that the story would obviously support, well, I'm looking up the sky, there's a star there, but there had to be something unique about it, don't you think? There, there's a number of theories. Some say that it was a, uh, um, a, a special uh, Shekinah glory of God in some way, shape or form. It wasn't actually a celestial body. Others believe that it was some kind of comet or meteor or so on. Some th- say a supernova. I, the best explanation that I've heard, and there's actually a, a, a teaching on this called the Star of Bethlehem. In fact, a old University of Minnesota professor every Christmas used to do this teaching in his science classrooms at the University of Minnesota. Uh, he's long gone now. But uh, he says it was the king star, which was Jupiter, a wandering star crossing through the constellation of the Virgin. And that sign is what, which matches the sign, by the way, in Revelation chapter 12, um, that talks about the sign of a woman and of giving birth to a child and so on. And that celestial event is what they saw in the sky. Now, how did the star stop? If you know anything about stars, there are fixed stars that never stop. They always go in the same pattern because they're stars far away. But there's wandering stars, and those are actually planets. And before they actually figured out that those were planets, they noticed that these stars didn't behave like the other stars. And a wandering star, a planet, Jupiter, 
can appear to stop in the sky. It's called going retrograde. And the pattern of that star, based on both of them moving through the sky, it will appear to stop, reverse course, and then pick up its pattern again. And that Jupiter stopping in the constellation of Virga, uh, the Virgin is what some believe is the sign that they saw in the sky. Heavenly UFO? <laughs> uh, well, no, it's a, it's a planet, right? The yeah. king planet yeah. Jupiter. Well, I mean, stopping and looking like it's going in a different direction. Yeah, it just, over time, <laughs> it looks like it stops w- yeah. in the pattern it's been moving. It goes retrograde, and then it starts up again. It's very fascinating stuff. So, I, but I think the, Greek, the key word, though, and we, I haven't looked into it in depth in the Greek of the New Testament, it says that they, they said, we saw his star that appeared in the east. And the point is, it's an event. It's not like they saw something coming and then, it, you know, it may have stopped. And that may be right. But they talk about it appearing. And so somehow it caught their attention because these were the guys who stayed up all night. These were the guys who watched the stars. So I, I'm i going to have to look deeper into that unless you guys know something more than I do. Well, let me read Revelation chapter 12. A great sign appeared in the heavens. A woman clothed with the sun. This is the virgin, the woman, the constellation Virgo with a moon under her feet and a crown of 12 stars in her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. You guys know that's an actual const- a, a celestial event and description. This actually happens in the sky. So it's pretty cool. That's neat. Wow. And you know what's interesting, an interesting fact about the Bible, it, we all have concluded there were three wise men. Yeah. Because of the three gifts, but the Bible doesn't say that. There could be many wise men. It doesn't say there were three that does talk about three gifts, but that doesn't mean there were just three wise men. Yeah, it doesn't say they rode on camels either. They yeah. probably rode horses, Arabian horses of some sort or another. Mm-hmm. And there's a number of, of kind of traditions that aren't necessarily biblical in the Christmas account. Yeah, but if you're putting on a play in middle school, <laughs> there's three wise men. <laughs> you better believe there is. There's only three. That's right. All right, because I was kind of paying attention, and, and then Wyatt and I were trying to solve another issue we were having. Uh, a question or comment came in uh, that said, so is the speaker claiming himself as the author of his faith? I don't know what that would have been in, re- in response to, but that seems like... I think that's in response to the Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, and they are arguing the basically the divine election standpoint that God is the one who gives faith to people so that they can believe. Uh, and And the... <laughs> I mean, the bottom line issue with that is that, okay, so who does God give faith to so that they can believe and be saved? Is it just some or is it all? And so, and it, it ignores the, the, the free will of each and every being to decide and to believe for themselves whether or not they're going to believe in God or not believe in God. And I think every single person has the free will to what must I do to be saved, Paul is, is asked, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. So like you said, Tom, people believe in a lot of things. They do. If if it's true, which the Bible says it is, that every human being is born uh, in the image of God, then that image within an individual longs for and identifies with a creator of some sort. And, and our minds can deny it, but it still comes from within. So in, in respect to, to what you just said, Jeff, that would be my sense about having that faith that came along with the image of God, no matter how distorted or warped or corrupted it is. That's See, that think, first mover stuff right. that you were talking yeah. about yeah. too, Tom. Yes, I agree with that. See, I think we've got two different discussions, though, because universalism or um, 
when you talk about uh, the Lord, you know, choosing some and not choosing others, mm-hmm. that's assuming that that is what faith is talking about. What I'm saying is we've got two different topics here because two different parts of the Bible. The one topic about faith, it's kind of like I've got, I have three sons, and there are things I have offered them for 40-some years that they have not taken. They have not incorporated in their life. They have not done anything with, but I don't quit offering it. I'm of the conviction, and I've watched this happen to people who have come to faith, and I've been privileged to lead a lot of people. These people had no historical knowledge, had no real understanding of the Bible, had nothing. They were desperate in most cases, usually alcoholism, drugs, or whatever else. It was only when they finally surrendered that it seemed that faith became active in their lives. So I'm of the, the I lean toward the direction uh, very strongly that even faith is a gift, but I don't see the Lord distracting that from anybody. I think he's there continually trying to pump that into us. Therefore, when I stand before the Lord, I can't say, well, you didn't give me any faith. No, no, no. I gave it to you. You never put it to work. So it could be one or the other. Um, And I looked at the Greek uh, when it comes back to that under the Ephesians one. And at least Lenski, for what that's worth, of course, he was a Lutheran, so we want to keep that in mind. He says that the two, you can't separate grace from faith in the article. So Mm -hmm. I don't know. Well, Wyatt and I just discovered that people were getting an auto reply if you sent a question in that said, thank you for reaching out to Faith Radio. We received your message and our team will respond as soon as we can. Have a wonderful Christmas. Hmm. Can you you automatically send them an answer at the same time? Well, I and think then we're scrambling we... to let them know because some people think that this is a replay and maybe, oh, not, gotcha. maybe not live. Gotcha. But we are very live. Uh, so just so you know, if you get that auto reply, we currently mm. don't know how to take it off, do we? But we're working <laughs> on it. But we are, we are very live here on the show. Um, all right. In John 15, who exactly are the branches? Did they once know God? Who are those who will be cut off? Thank you for your great discussions. Oh, I love this question. I did a three-day class called How to Handle Difficult Passages a number of years ago. And this passage where it says, he cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit was the topic of this class. So we studied the passage. We studied the context, the immediate context around it, the chapter and the whole book of John. And by the way, the context of the rest of the New Testament. And one of the assumptions that we know is that, and we've talked about this many times, that once a believer is truly born again, they're born again for all of eternity, right? That's that assurance of salvation. John has been describing throughout the book of John, if you believe in me, you'll have eternal life. If you believe, you'll have eternal life. Is he now saying in chapter 15 that if you don't bear any fruit, you're now going to be cut off? So clearly the branches that are not connected to the vine are gathered up and burned. That is a picture of hellfire, Mm -hmm. clearly. But the question is, can a true believer be cut off? And this is where a little Greek goes a long way because the Greek word for cut off there is the Greek word aro, A-I-R-O, and it literally means to lift up. Now, let me read that verse again with that understanding. He lifts up every branch in me that bears no fruit. Remember, the branches are connected to the vine. I think that's a picture of true believers being connected to the vine, who is Jesus Christ himself. And if you're not bearing any fruit, he's going to prune you. He's going to lift you up so that you can become more fruitful. But I'm convinced that Jesus will never, ever cut a true believer off of the vine because of fruitlessness. It's just like the passage in Revelation where he says he spits people out of his mouth if they're lukewarm and so on. If you're a true believer, you're united with Christ. You'll never be cut off. You'll never be spit out. 
you have eternal life. Now, Christian, go be fruitful. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, uh, one scholar put it this way. He says, the apparent problem <clears throat> is the same with all of the other passages in Scripture that warn Christians about falling away. If a true Christian cannot lose salvation, why warn them about falling away? The best explanation, this this scholar says, is that these warnings were directed towards professing Christians who appear, at least outwardly, to be connected to the vine. Mm-hmm. They are branches in the vicinity of the vine, but there is a disconnect. Judas Iscariot is a good example of a false professor. They, uh, the parable of the seed in the, in the soils presents young plants that seem to start out well, but then fall away. So it's possible, I think, to be a professing Christian, but not a confessing Christian. So, you know, if you've ever worked with plants, like I work with apple trees all the time, you can try to graft a branch in, but if it isn't going to 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 take, it isn't going to be able to absorb the nutrients in the, the root itself, then the branch is useless. It's not going to produce any fruit. It'll die. It may live for a short time, but it's going to die. So it's a word picture, I think, of a professing uh, person who professes to be a follower of Christ, but did not confess to be a follower May of Christ. May I add a little bit to that? <clears throat> sure. Do we have the time? I don't want to get into something here. And well, you, you've got good. yeah, you got a little time. I got ten seconds. Yeah. Me. Okay. I'll make it twelve. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I love Romans ten nine and ten that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead you will be saved. Look at Christianity in this country. We have been very can, content with getting people to confess. Well, we've talked very little to people about being disciples or about. You know, the, the confession is with the mouth. That's coming out of, you know, what you believe. The belief comes out of the heart, and that's the decision-making place. And so what I've done when I have an altar call as a Lutheran, yes, I do. When I have an altar call or I, I invite people to faith, I now tell people, you've got to confess two things. You know, you repent of your sins, certainly. Jesus, I confess you as my Lord and Savior, and... I commit myself to being a lifelong disciple because the issue, I had a guy one Sunday come to church and receive Jesus, and then he never came back. And I finally tracked him down after a month, and I said, why didn't you come back? He said, you didn't ask me to. I said, what do you mean you didn't ask me to? All you asked me to do was repent of my sin and receive Jesus, and I'd go to heaven. And that's exactly what I did. And I changed from that moment. And from now on, when I invite people to repent and receive Jesus, I also ask them, make a commitment before Jesus to be his lifelong disciple, and that's just touching on this Romans 10. Yeah, in another show that we had done together, Bill, we talked about this whole trajectory of salvation, that the actual beginning of salvation, which is a process initiated by an event which is called conversion. So when a person receives Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, that's the event that ushers them into a lifetime and eternity of salvation. That salvation process is what you're referring to, Tom, in terms of discipleship that should be an immediate follow-on to that event called conversion. All right. That is well done, gentlemen. We're going to take a break and come back with lots more God Talk. Thank you for your awesome questions. There's so many coming in today, so we're going to try to sort through and get to all of them. And 877-933-2484. We will be right back. Show with Bill Arno. 
Welcome to the show. It's time for Guy Talker, guy who, guys who talk, and they're talking today. <laughs> oh, my. Uh, I've got uh, Dr. B, Tom P, and Jeff V. That's the team. And they're sitting from left to right, so you can just imagine. You go to my left, I've got uh, Dr. Greg Borgon, and the next to him is Pastor Tom Parrish, and next to him is Jeff Verdorn. Yes, and I'm trapped That's, in the middle. I know you are. It's good. Stuck I learned from both sides. with you. Yeah. So... Next question. Wait, Tom. that makes me a clown, by the way. <laughs> yeah, no, no, Clowns no. to the left of you, yeah, jokers no. to the right. That makes me a clown. Is that uh, right? right? No, wrong yeah. song. <laughs> <laughs> All right, here's my next question that uh, came in this week. Uh, it came in in, in advance, so I want to make sure I get to this one. My husband and I have belonged to our church for many years. Our church family has become our family. Mm-hmm. Just recently, our minister of 37 years just retired. The church council called an interim pastor who is a homosexual and married to a man who is also a minister. Oh, my. My husband and I are very upset about this. We love our church and our church family, but cannot abide to hearing and supporting this interim minister. The bottom line is, do we wait until the call goes out and keep praying that the minister is not gay, or do we leave our church and find another congregation? As a pastor? Yeah. Organize those people that feel the same way you do. Go to that church council or board or whatever it is, and let them understand how you really feel. I think too often decisions are made by a few people in the church, and for whatever reason, and then everybody else says, well, I've either got to put up with it or I've got to leave. No, you don't. It's still your church. Go and confront even the pastors. I tell people all the time, look, I'm a human being, just like you are. I make mistakes. If you can show me biblically where I'm wrong, I'm willing to accept that, and I will repent of that. But I think most of us look at Oh, that's a permanent fix. The pastor, we can't do anything about that, so we have to leave or whatever, or accept it. No, you can go and you can say, this is wrong, and we don't agree with it. And you get enough people to do that and begin to withhold their money from the church. It is amazing what boards will do. I agree with that 100%, but be prepared to leave the church if it doesn't work. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right? Because it, I, I, I love when people take this initiative and try to make changes in the, in the leadership. But my experience from story after story over the years is that it doesn't work that often. And if you can make it, make the change work, then all the power to you. But if you can't be prepared to find another church, that's going to stick to the truth of the word of God. And you really have to pray the Lord will raise up for that group, a leader who is tenacious and is kind of a pit bull in terms of not giving up and going after it. And then when I was in seminary, uh, several of the professors were quite liberal. And there were 52 in my class, and four of us were quite conservative. These guys that I got to know, these four, were pit bulls. I mean, the professors didn't like to see us even come in the classroom because we would not tolerate non-biblical teaching. And we would ask questions. And these were intelligent guys. They had done a lot of reading. And the professor finally had to admit, I'll be glad when you guys are out of here. Well, <laughs> we need pit bulls in the church that won't give up that won't simply give in and, and really challenge because there's so many people that won't leave that church and won't go anywhere else because they don't know where to go and they don't have friends, but they're going to come under that teaching, and that's terrible. God Look. always has a remnant. Yeah. And so it may be that you've been called to be that remnant in that new context, to be the voice of reason, the voice of wisdom, hmm. the voice of, of, of sanctity in the midst of all of that chaos. 
And so consequently, you know, churches don't need leaders if everything is going great. All they need is managers. So when things go bad, maybe God's calling you to take a leadership position and to lead a remnant in there. Not a dissenting remnant, but a, a remnant that holds to the Word of God. Um, and maybe that's what you have to consider. And, and let your conversation be full of grace. Remember, don't get yeah. mad, don't get Gentleness angry, don't respect. get vengeful. Yeah. Just it, speak the truth I, in love with grace. I believe in nice pit bulls. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. The next question uh, I think should be answered by the people that have a Catholic background, which would be you, Dr. Greg Borgon, and mm-hmm. myself. But I'm going to plead the fifth, so it's just going to be you. <laughs> <laughs> And it probably follows up to a little bit of what we just talked about. And the question is, I want to hear the panel's thoughts on the Pope blessing same-sex couples. I think it's the same thing, that here's a a leader that's been uh, taken over as the the Pope of the Roman Catholic Church. He's not infallible, even though the the Roman Catholic Church claims that the Pope is infallible. He is not infallible. And so consequently, he's made a change now that obviously is against what Scripture has to say. So if you're asking how does it relate to the last question about do you you just leave the Catholic Church then, well, the same, I'd respond the same way, that maybe God's called you to be a remnant in the midst of that context and to be a purveyor of truth, uh, even though you're going to be probably criticized for that position given the Pope's new position. All right. You guys can chime in if you want. I just thought I'd— I'm a Lutheran. And we left the Roman Catholic Church, but it wasn't I get that. over that 500 issue. years ago. It was, it was over, but it goes back to the real thing. What does the Word of God actually say? Yeah. The problem is we have to all, whether you're Roman Catholic or Lutheran or Presbyterian or Baptist, what does the Word actually say? And too often we don't spend enough time in the Word of God as a group of people, not just as individuals, but as a group, really hashing this out. Right now we have four elders in my church, which we established five years ago. They never had elders before that. The one thing I insist and push them on is to be diligent with the Scriptures. And so every Tuesday when we meet, they see the sermon text. We talk about it. They give me feedback. They tell me if my thinking's not right or whatever else because— we need a unity of leadership in that church, and that's what every church needs, but you're only going to get that from the Word. Yeah. I think there's an issue anytime any person of God, whatever the denomination, blesses something that God clearly calls sexual immorality. There's lots of different kinds of sexual immorality. I don't want to be in a position where someone is saying uh, or giving their blessing on any kind of sexual immorality, and I th- that's how I see it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tom, I don't know if you want to add me to your list of people that preview your sermon, but I could, you know, <laughs> I could, I could chime in with the. You're not using that joke, are you? <laughs> no, that would be good, Bill. I'll be sending it over to you on Monday. Okay, awesome, awesome. Afterward. All right. Eight seven seven nine three three two four eight four is the number to text your question over. The next question is: There are a lot of promises in the Old and New Testament. To different people or nations, are we to assume that those promises are for us as well, or are they only promises for us if they've been repeated in the New Testament? Well, context, we've talked about that, is the key to this whole thing. Who is the promise being made to, and under what circumstances? I mean, there were promises for the people when they were in Babylon for 70 years, that they would return, the temple would be rebuilt, the walls would be rebuilt, Ezra and Nehemiah. Certainly, 
those are promises for those people. We're we're not looking for Ezra and Nehemiah today that I know of to do that. I mean, the, the Lord may have other plans, but the bottom line is this. Look at the context first. I do believe there are promises in the Old Testament that filter over into the New Testament, and I always look for what the New Testament does with those promises because I just read the other day something like 330 promises of the Old Testament have found their fulfillment in the New Testament, and yet I think most of us would be hard-pressed to know which ones those are, mm-hmm. and I love that. I want to look at it. Yeah, I think the promises to Israel are the promises to Israel, the promises that are made to other Cities. I mean, there's, there's. God gives lots of promises to lots of cities, Gentile, pagan cities. The uh, promises of their destruction. Those are certainly not for the Christian today. Look, the New Testament is full of a whole bunch of promises for those who believe in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. I would focus on those. I know those are promises to the church. So I would focus on those promises. And and are there connections and links to the promises that God has made to Israel, uh, to the church? Well, yeah, there's lots of connections. Uh, you know, Christ was the fulfillment of all of the promises to Israel, pretty much, is how I would describe it. So look to the New Testament to see what God has in store for the church, because our promises are incredible. All right, we'll take a break, but I promise we'll be back with lots more guy talk Plenty of time to get your question in. Maybe it's a question that's been on your mind for as little as five minutes. You can send it over, 877-933-2484, and we would love to discuss it. We don't always have the right answer, but we try as hard as we can. We're following God's Word. We're looking at only the Bible. You don't need another opinion in this world. There's 8 billion people in this world. You don't need an opinion. You need what the Word of God says. That's the truth. We'll be right back. The Bible is valuable, and reading and studying the Bible can transform your life. Hi, I'm Angela Smith, host of Reading the Bible Together podcast. Several times a year, we release a new Reading the Bible Together study. We've studied Luke, Daniel, Advent, Lent, and so many more. You can access all of our studies for free by going to the Reading the Bible Together resource page at myfaithradio.com. In addition to the studies, we also have the accompanying podcast. You can listen wherever you listen to podcasts. You can study on your own, or if your small group or Bible study is looking for what to study next, check out the Reading the Bible Together resource page at myfaithradio.com. Welcome to Guy Talk, or Guys Who Talk. I've got Dr. B, I've got Tom P, and i got you Jeff V. That's the team. And they're here ready to answer your questions. Their Bibles are open. That's all they care about is looking to see what is in the Bible and what the Bible says. So your uh, question can be texted over to 877-933-2484. I'll say that one more time. 877-933-2484. All right. um, Here's a question. I've enjoyed uh, your conversations on eschatology. Thank you. Could you please address the following? What is the purpose of the 1,000-year millennial reign, and why did God set the time to 1,000 years? Good question. Um, You know, I'm going to go to Acts chapter 1, where Jesus is about to go up to heaven. He's died on a cross. He rose after three days. He's now been on earth for 40 days, and he's about to go up. And his disciples ask him, are you now going to restore the kingdom to Israel? 
And he doesn't say, yes, it's going to happen right now. Instead, he says, no, you're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. That happens 10 days later. He departs, goes up to heaven. There is a promised kingdom, a promised restoration of the kingdom of Israel that God has promised, and he's going to keep his promise. That promise, like just before the break, we were talking about the promises of God. One of the things that he promised was uh, a future millennial kingdom that uh, where the where there will be peace on earth. Men will beat their weapons into plowshares. There'll be peace on earth. The wolf will lie down with the lamb, and men will live longer. And all of these promises over and over and over in the Old Testament. And he needs to fulfill that. Um, why a thousand years? I don't. Uh, that you got me. I don't. Mm. I don't know why it's yeah, thousand and not three thousand or eight thousand or. Yeah. 500, I don't know the answer No to that. TSA. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> Would that right. be nice? <laughs> it will be. All right, part two of the question, can you explain the new heaven and new earth from Revelation 21? Jesus will reign from Jerusalem for a thousand years. Then what? Where and how does planet earth and the current heaven exist with one another for the rest of eternity after a thousand years? This is how I like to explain it. See if this is consistent with what you guys say. It says heaven and earth flee from God's presence in that moment, and he makes all things new. Today, right now, heaven and earth are separate. Heaven's up there, earth's down here. But after the great white throne, after the thousand-year reign and the great white throne judgment, God says heaven and earth come together. Revelation 21 verse 3 or 4 says, and then the dwelling of God is with man. Heaven and earth come together for all of eternity. And for that kingdom, we have a lot of information about the kingdom, the thousand-year reign of Christ, lots and lots of verses. We just have this one chapter in the book of Revelation about the eternal state, and that's the new Jerusalem, the streets of gold, and all that as well. So, mm-hmm. All right. You guys are blinking at me. Should I move on? There's one more eschatology question. Is Jesus absent from heaven during the millennium uh, since he's reigning from Jerusalem? It's a great you know, one of the questions that I, I've gotten in the end times class is when we are reigning with Christ on earth during that millennial reign, are we able to go up to heaven back and forth? Like, do we, do we retire at the end of the day and go back up <laughs> to heaven or something, you know, and that's where we take our rest. Uh, you know, there's no verse, there's no passage. I, I don't know the answer to this. I'm all for it. <laughs> but it's clear there are scores of verses that say that during this kingdom time, this thousand-year reign, Jesus is on earth reigning from sea to sea, and the nations will go up before them, before him in Jerusalem, and so I know it's an earthly kingdom uh, where Christ is on earth. There's one more question. When Jesus (laughs) said, I go to prepare a place for you, also known as our mansion, and all that exists currently in heaven, is that somehow going to be remodeled like new heavens, new earth? What or why would there be a new heaven anyway? I think it relates to this new Jerusalem that is going to come down from heaven and uh, be established in the new heaven and new earth. Heaven on earth. Yeah, heaven on earth. So I think it has to do with the new Jerusalem that comes down from heaven that's described in Revelation 21. Mm -hmm. Great. Those are a bunch of great questions. They are. Um, I... Hi, guys. I've accepted Jesus as my Lord and Savior, but I feel a constant pressure that I'm not serving and doing enough to please God. It consumes me and leads me to do nothing. Any advice? Hmm. Well, if it consumes you and it leads you to do nothing, yes, you've identified a real issue. You need to turn to other Christians that you trust. 
and uh, two or three people that you can talk to about this and pray with you. Uh, if you were in my church, we'd be setting up meetings right now to start sitting down and praying with a group of us so the Lord would give direction. Because most of us, when we get isolated like that, and we're, we're kind of got that inner turmoil, that's where we need one another in the body of Christ. Because I even need that as a pastor. Mm-hmm. I don't I don't function well in isolation from other people. And so I turn to other pastors, I turn to other people, I turn to the elders of our church, and for me, uh, it's kept me healthy and alive for all these years. Titus 2, 11 through 14 talks about uh, not only the benefits, again, that accrue to our account once we receive Jesus as Savior and Lord, but also our obligations and duties as a member of God's family. It says, for the grace of God has appeared to all men, training us to uh, renounce uh, worldliness and worldly passions and live upright and godly lives in this present age while we wait for this blessed appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem for himself a people eager to do what is good. Yeah. So the fact of the matter is, is that we have things to do because of who we are. Who we are matters to God because who we are in God will determine and influence what we do, but they're inseparable that you have to be not only identified as a member of the family of God, but also participate in God's redemptive purposes in a fallen world. So we don't have a, an, an option. We can't lie dormant. We can't climb into a fetal position and wait for Christ to come um, and, and just hope that he's going to come soon. We have a responsibility to serve. And so we need to do that in obedience. You know, we were talking about Ephesians 2, 8. Uh, before the last break, and it, by grace you have been saved through faith. But the next verse, it's a, uh, and it says, not by works so that no one can boast, verse 9, but the next verse after that, uh, a lot of times we stop there and just stop with an understanding of salvation. But God says this, for we are God's workmanship or handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good work. Yeah. That he prepared in advance for us to do. Yeah, so once you're saved, God has a whole bunch that he's called you to. That's right. To call you to do, primarily to be salt and light in this world, to proclaim his gospel, to go into all the world, make disciples, to share the gospel with people. And one of the ways in which I've described it to the, the men I, I lead in my ministry is that you're to leverage your wiring to facilitate God's redemptive purposes in a fallen world. That God created you with certain talents and abilities, and you've acquired skills, you have spiritual gifts, and you're to be using those to further the kingdom of God. That's you know, almost what I was going to say. Right? Because, <laughs> I mean, I'd like to have a conversation to say, how could I encourage you with the gifts God's given you? Maybe you don't know what they are. Yeah. We're going to take a break and be right back with Hour 2. Lots of guy talk ahead. Please send your questions over 877-933-2484. We can't wait to hear from you. Guy Talk Hour 2, just ahead. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.